And uh, I have the joy of being able to bring the word uh, this morning. And as Josh said, we've been going through the Psalms. He said the four sections. We looked at creation. We looked at the fall. This last four weeks, we've been spending time in lament. And right now, we're starting off our three weeks on redemption in the Psalms. I think it's appropriate for us to start off our little mini-series within the series of the Psalms uh, by going to Psalm 51. Like a ball. That's nice. All right, uh, so many of you know uh, the types of things I like, especially those of you who know me well, that I like music, um, I like playing things like Ultimate Frisbee, I love fishing, and I also really love reading. Uh, recently, I was reading a book called Fallen. I really recommend it if you want a good doctrine of sin and of the fall, and in there, I read this story about the great American preacher, Jonathan Edwards. He was a part of the religious revivals in the 1700s. Uh, back before the United States were the United States. And the story goes that as he was leading a revival, he was leading this 800-person prayer meeting for men in the town where he was preaching. And while he's leading this 800-person prayer meeting, he receives a note from one of the women in town. And the note describes her husband, who she describes as uh, being spiritually proud, of being unloving, of being difficult. And her request is that Jonathan Edwards would personally pray for her husband, that he would be drawn to repentance. And Jonathan Edwards gets this really bold idea. He decides that he's going to read the note in front of the 800 men, assuming that the husband described in the note is in the crowd. And he asks that the man described in the note would raise his hand. Please raise your hand if this is you so that we can pray for you. Can you imagine if Josh did that during church? If he said, oh, I've heard one of you husbands. I've heard that you, this last week, spoke really angrily towards your children and unkindly towards your wife. Would you please stand up? And we can all come around you and we could pray. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Josh. Could you imagine someone doing that? I, I don't know what type of person would raise their hand in a crowd of 800 people knowing that in front of all of those people you're confessing your sin. You're saying, that is me. And what actually happened is that over 300 of the 800 men raised their hands and identified themselves as the husband. I am the unloving husband. I'm the spiritually proud husband. And they prayed for these men. I believe it was a work of God's Spirit convicting them of their sin, drawing them to repentance. I want you for a second to imagine that you are in that crowd, that you are part of those 800 people Would you raise your hand knowing that you might be the only person to raise your hand? That of all the 800 people, you might be the one who's all all, all the eyes are on you. Everybody knows your sin and everybody's going to come pray for you. Would you be that person? Now generally, when we're called out for our sin, it doesn't take place in 800 person prayer meetings or even uh, necessarily in, in church services. It often happens in the everyday pieces of life. It's often our husband or our wife or our parents, or our best friends, the people closest to us that are willing to call us out when we're not acting and living the way that we should. They're willing to call us out in our sin. And again, I want you to think for a second, how do you generally respond when someone close to you comes to you and points out something that you have been doing that's either harming them or is against uh, the law of God, is sin? How do you respond? What's your first gut reaction I think there's a lot of ways we can respond. One is 
to hide it. We try to cover it up so that other people don't find out. Maybe we try to save face and make excuses. You know, that's, you know, that's not really like me. Or I had, a, I had a really hard day at work or with the kids. Or school was just really tough today. So, you know, I, you know, that explains why I acted towards you in the way that I did. Or do we just try harder? Do we say, I'm just going to muster up the strength within me and I'm going to stop sinning. I'm just going to stop doing that thing towards you. I think all of those responses uh, in the end aren't really what God desires for us when we're confronted with our sin, when we're called out. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. It was written by King David after he was confronted with his sin. Many of you probably know the story. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I encourage you after the service this afternoon, if you're looking for something to do, to go read the story. It's of David and Bathsheba. David is the king of Israel. He's this man called to lead the nation in godliness. He's described as the man after God's own heart. But what he does is he commits adultery with this woman named Bathsheba, and his response to his sin is to cover it up. He wants to hide it. And so he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, sent to the front lines of battle, and he's strategically placed there so that he will be killed. So you have the king of Israel breaking two of the most basic moral laws that God has given his people. He committed adultery and he committed murder. But we see in the story, particularly in 2 Samuel 12, that God doesn't leave him there. God sends a prophet named Nathan who comes and confronts David, who calls him out for his sin. Famously, he says, you are the man, after telling The story, he corners David and confronts him in his sin. And Psalm 51 is David's response. And it's written, it's, I believe, a part of the Psalms, the songbook of God's people, so that it would be instructive for us, that these would be words that we sing. We just actually sang them. God be merciful to me is an arrangement of Psalm 51. That it would teach us repentance. It would teach us how we respond, how we go to God when we're confronted with our sin. So let's look at Psalm 51. Uh, If you have one of the pew Bibles or one in the back, if you don't have one, you can go grab one. There's no judgment there. I'm going to be walking through the passage, so it'll probably be useful to have the passage either open on your phone or open in the Bible in front of you. It's on page 474 in the pew Bibles. So let's go to God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word, for giving us wisdom in Psalm 51 about how to respond to our sin. Thank you for your psalms, which not only teach us how to praise you, but they also teach us how to deal with the uncomfortable pieces of our life. Thank you for teaching us in the psalms of lament how to weep and how to cry out to you. And thank you in Psalm 51 for showing us how to deal with the uncomfortable reality of our sin. May we learn wisdom from Psalm 51 in your word this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So like David, we're all going to have to deal with our sin and its consequences. And we're all going to be called out by other people. And really that's ultimately a good thing. It's a good thing as a Christian to be in a church, to be in a body of believers who will not let you get away with just anything. People who will call you out in your sin. And it's actually a sign of love. That someone loves you if they're willing to call you out in your sin. And we're also confronted by God's word, particularly God's law. I love that uh, it's described as a mirror. That when we read God's word, when we see God's law, that it shows us our true selves. John Calvin calls it an anatomy of the human soul. He calls the Psalms an anatomy of the human soul because it shows us every piece of our life and our emotions. It shows us something deep within us. And his law shows us our sin. As people like to say, you don't get mad at the mirror if you don't like what it shows you in the morning. The mirror is just showing you reality. And again, it's, it's God's love toward us. It's his grace toward us when he doesn't just leave us where we're at, but he shows us who we really are and draws us back to himself. We're going to see in Psalm 51 how the Lord does that and how he desires for us to respond to our sin. Particularly, we're going to look at two pieces. That God desires uh, for us to seek restoration and transformation when confronted with our sin. We're going to look at those two pieces. Restoration, particularly restoration to God, and transformation by God when confronted with our sin. So we'll look at that first main point if you're taking notes. I like repetition so you can write it. Seek restoration to God when confronted with our sin. And we're going to look at three A's that we see in this. I like alliteration. You guys know that already. I think it's such a helpful way to memorize and remember what we learn in God's word. So we have three A's. It's appeal to God's character, admit our guilt, and ask for forgiveness. So easy to remember. Again, if you're taking notes, appeal to God's character, Admit our guilt and ask for forgiveness. So we'll start right away in verse 1 as we look at appeal to God's character. David begins his cry uh, for mercy by appealing to two things. He appeals to God's steadfast love and he appeals to God's abundant mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. God's steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. Josh could correct me if I say that wrong, but if there's four words in Hebrew that you should probably learn, I think chesed is one of them. Anytime you're reading the Psalms and you come across steadfast love or loving kindness or unfailing love, depending on the translation you're reading, in the 
ESV, it's almost always steadfast love. It's, it's that word, and it refers specifically to God's loyal love toward his people, his covenant love to them because of his faithfulness to his promises and the relationship that he's established with them. So it's this covenantal relationship, relational language. It's referring to the relationship that David already has with God because of the promises that God has already made to David. And it makes sense that he would appeal to that right away. He would appeal to God not just as a God out there, but his God, the God who is faithful, the God who loves him. And he appeals to his abundant mercy. And if you know, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. He's pointing to part of God's character, one of God's attributes, that he does not always deal with people according to their sins. We're going to see that in Psalm 103 in a couple weeks. It's part of who God is. And I think it's really instructive for us. When we're confronted with our sin, the first thing that we should do is appeal to God's character. And that's why it's so important for us to study things like God's attributes. It's so good for us to study theology because it doesn't do any good to my soul if I go to confess my sins to a God who is simply out there somewhere. If the God that I confess to is just a God out there, a God who may or may not be merciful, a God who might change, who maybe he was merciful and loving yesterday, but today he's not merciful and loving. But if I know who my God is, if I know his attributes, if I know that he is patient and he is kind and he is loving and he is compassionate and merciful, if I know that he's faithful to all of his promises to forgive those people that honestly turn to him in repentance, then I can go to God with, with confidence. It changes the way that I approach him in confession if I remember first who he is. And I think we do this really well if we pray to God as our father. If you see how Jesus instructed his people how to pray, he He taught them in the Lord's Prayer to start our Father. And part of that prayer is that we ask for forgiveness of our debts as we forgive those, as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. So we begin that prayer of confession by appealing to God as our Father. It makes all of the difference in my confession of sin if I go into my confession knowing who God is. Often in our service we do a confession of sin and we do an assurance of pardon. And I absolutely love that. I love that we hear the gospel regularly and we kind of live out the story of the gospel as a church. And often in the assurance of pardon, we look at God's character. We focus in on one piece of who he is and what he has done that gives us assurance. But what's really great is that God's character not only gives us assurance coming out of confession, but it actually allows us to go into confession in the first place. That we can come into our time of confession because of who he is. And we can go out of our time of confession with assurance because of who he is. God's attributes, his character is the foundation for all of repentance. And all of what it means to come to God in confession. So second, we admit our guilt. So look to verses 2 through 6. Uh, David doesn't hide his sin here. One thing I want you to notice is uh, the possessive pronouns and how they shift. If you're an English nerd, you might like this. It goes in the first three lines, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. The focus is on God. And it shifts to my in the following verses. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David is owning his sin. He's not blaming someone else. He's not saying, they made me do it. He's not blaming Bathsheba for being a beautiful woman. 
He's saying it's my sin. It's my fault. It's what I have done. It's my transgression. It's my iniquity. And then he continues to go on. Through this section, he just keeps getting deeper and deeper in his admission of guilt. Verse 4, it's really interesting. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I have a quick question for you. Had David's sin harmed other people? Yes. It had harmed Uriah, obviously, because Uriah had been killed. And it harmed Bathsheba. So how can David say here, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Is David lying? Is this like, the, finally I found the one verse that proves that the Bible isn't true and that it's not trustworthy? No, if you, if you look at the context, what he's talking about is the judgment aspect of his sin. Right after that, he says that God would be blameless to judge him because of his sin. God is the just judge over the entire situation. And sin is ultimately always against God. I think Genesis 9 is a really good example of this. It's right at the end of the flood, uh, which I preached on a year or so ago, so it was still in my mind, uh, that right at the end of the flood narrative, God gives the reason why murder is wrong. And the reason he gives is that to kill another human is to kill an image bearer of God. To kill someone that was made by God in God's image. So if I killed someone else, in the end, I'm ultimately sinning against the God who made that person. Even if I, if I lie to someone, I'm, a, I'm sinning against the God of truth. I'm sinning and transgressing his commandments. So David isn't lying here. He's talking about his sin ultimately, and in the end, being against God, and that God is the one who's just to judge him. And this is really important, that God is just to judge us. We don't deserve God's mercy. If you deserve God's mercy, it's not mercy. Mercy, by definition, is not getting what you deserve. So I can't demand mercy of God. I cannot go to God and say, you must forgive me. I cannot do that. But I can plead with God for mercy, knowing, though, at the same time that he would be perfectly just. There would be no issue on God's part if he were to condemn me. And that's what David's getting at here. And he keeps going down. He keeps diving deeper all the way to the heart of the issue. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David realized that the primary issue was not his actions. It wasn't just what he did. It was what was within him that caused the actions. It was his heart. It was his nature because of sin that brought out the sinful actions against other people and against God. If you've heard the phrase, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin the act. We sin because we're sinners. And what David's appealing to here is that he was brought forth in iniquity. It's, it's his birth. He was born into this world of sin. He was born with a fallen and a corrupt nature. And it's a part of who he is. And really, that's not minimizing it. You might think that he's minimizing his sin by doing that. But he's not. He's actually enlarging his sin. Because if it was a fluke, if it wasn't really coming out of what's deeply inside him, then he could just excuse it away as an accident or something that's not really like him. But if he's saying, this is really who I am deep down inside, he cannot excuse it, excuse it away. He cannot wipe it away as a fluke or an accident. 
It's, it's part of him. It's part of his nature. David knows that God looks at the heart. That in the next verse it says, he delights in truth in the inward being. That the root problem is inside him. And I think this is instructive in two ways. The first is with other people and my interactions with them. And the second is in my interactions and relationship with the Lord. The first is if I sin against someone, say I sin against John for some reason. I don't know what I would do against John, but if I sinned against John, uh, how often would I go up to him and say, uh, I'm sorry, that's not like me. I don't usually act that way. I was just having a bad way, a bad day. How often do we justify ourselves or diminish our sin? It's really important that true apologies never diminish the wrong. If you want to apologize to someone and ask for their forgiveness, be honest, completely honest about what you have done towards them. Admit it to them. And then how often do we take it that next step and take it to God, knowing that even if I sin against John, I've ultimately sinned against God, and my greatest need is to be reconciled to him. I think there's a lot of freedom to be found in going to God and coming to him with all of our sin and its fullness and all of its dirtiness and griminess to lay it out before the Lord with honesty and truth. So we appeal to God's character. We admit our guilt in its fullness and all of its dirtiness and griminess. And then we ask for forgiveness. So look to verses uh, 7 through 9. Uh, Particularly look at the way that David describes this. He's using a lot of imagery from other places in the Old Testament. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What he's alluding to here is the cleanliness laws in Leviticus. He's alluding particularly to Leviticus 14, which is talking about lepers. Uh, people with that, that skin disease, and they would be unclean. There's a lot of things they would be unable to do in the community of God's people and in the temple and in worship because of that uncleanliness. And so there was a process that God gave in Leviticus 14 for them to be made clean again. And part of that process was that a priest would take hyssop branches, this plant, and he would dip it in blood and he would sprinkle the person seven times with the blood. At the end of the process, the person would wash their clothes and they would take a bath. And that's exactly what he's referring to here. Saying, purge me with hyssop, I'll be clean, wash me. It's that clothes, washing clothes, washing dirty clothes and washing his body. And I will be whiter than snow. And the image there, obviously we're Wisconsinites, we get it. I don't probably have to explain what white snow looks to you guys. Particularly that, that first fallen snow in December. Lexi and I love on the first night when it's snowing to walk outside in the streetlights and see the snow coming down. And it's like someone dumped glitter on the ground, right? Because there's all those big flakes and it's just shining back up at you from all around. It's not that gross stuff at the end of March on the side of the roads, which really isn't snow. It's just disgusting slush. But he's talking about complete cleanliness and purity that he's desiring from the Lord. And it continues on. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins. He's saying, forget my sin. Look away. And he says, blot out all my iniquities. And the image here that he's using is of wi- literally of wiping a slate clean, of wiping a record of wrong, all of the, the crimes that he had committed, saying, wipe it clean, cleanse it, I I, forget it, Lord, forget what I have done. He's asking for real forgiveness through these images. images. He's, he's saying, God, make me pure. Clean off all of my dirt, all of my dirtiness and griminess, Blot out my cancel, that my record of wrong. It's like ripping up an IOU. Just tear it up, Lord. Wash it away. 
What David understood here is that our first and our greatest need when we sin is to be restored in our relationship with God. And if we're going to be restored in our relationship with God, we need our sin to be dealt with. If our sin brings us under God's justice, then our greatest need is always God's mercy. And I want us to see that the three parts of this confession in the first part of Psalm 51 all find their answer in the person and work of Jesus. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So first, God's character. Our confidence that God's character is for us and is a ground for our, our forgiveness is found in looking to Jesus, who is the greatest declaration of God's love toward us. And we talked about that in 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John. Uh, some verses to go to, I won't read them right now. If you want to write these down and look at them later, is John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. I like that two of the best verses in the entire New Testament about God's love are both John 3.16s. One's just 1 John 3.16, very easy to remember. The second is uh, our guilt. When we confess our guilt to God and we confess that he's just to condemn us, we also look to Christ who satisfied God's justice in our place. God didn't sacrifice his justice to give us mercy. God was completely just in the way that he gave us mercy because he fulfilled his justice by placing on the shoulders of Christ every last drop of what we deserve from the justice of God. If you want to look at a New Testament verse on that, 2 Corinthians, uh, just the the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 5 would be very helpful for that. And third, forgiveness and cleansing. When we plead to God for cleansing, to wash us, what we're really pleading for is for the blood of Christ to cleanse us. Uh, Hebrews 9 talks about this, and it actually uses that same imagery of, of hyssop branches, and it talks about the blood that really cleanses, that ultimately cleanses, is the blood of Christ. One of my favorite hymns is, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all all their guilty stains. The great solution to our guilt and our shame and the great hope of being restored to God when we repent is Christ. And it's only found in him and his work in the gospel. So that's our first main point, that we seek restoration to God when confronted with our sin. And the second one is that we seek transformation by God when confronted with our sin. I think it's important for us to recognize here and just in the Christian life that God's desires for us as his people is way more than just having our slate wiped clean. God doesn't say, you're forgiven, now just get on with whatever else you were doing. God's desire is to change us. His desire is to transform us. Not just to try to be a better person on our own. Obedience to God certainly takes effort. I don't want to minimize that we have to work We have to try to fight against our sin, to put our sin to death and to be holy, but we don't do that on our own strength. Our restoration to God that we saw in the first part is a work that only God can do in Christ. And our transformation by God is something that only God can do. We cannot do it for ourselves. So look, look with me to three of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's verses 10 through 12. See how this is only a work that God can do. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
you remember, David had said that the root problem was his heart and his nature. So if he wants to live in obedience to God and really truly turn from his sin, what he ultimately needs is a new heart. He needs a new nature for God to do something for him that he can never do for himself. And I think this is emphasized by the first word in verse 10. It's create. It's actually the same word that's used in Genesis 1 for God's act of creating the world out of nothing. I think part of his point here is that to have a new heart created in us for the the old heart of stone to be taken out for us to have a renewed spirit and a willing spirit, that that is as much a supernatural act of God as him creating the world out of absolutely nothing. That it's something that I cannot possibly do for myself. I cannot take my heart. I cannot make myself new. But God can, and he does. And it's an act of creation. It's a sovereign act of God in my heart, which is why David cries out for it in prayer. He doesn't just first try to be better. He cries out to God and asks for the Lord's help. The remaining verses of Psalm 51, I think they give us two results of this sort of transformed heart that the Lord gives to those people who cry to him in prayer. And those two results are two W's, witness and worship. And I was really, really hoping that I could get like three Z's because it could be the A to Z's of repentance. But I was talking with the worship leader of Portico before I I preached at their service. We decided that it would be best to just say A and W, the root beer of repentance. So we have the A's, the A's and W's, three A's and two W's, witness and worship. So let's look at those. Uh, Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I want you to see the word then there. David's work to bring other people, transgressors and sinners, back to God to be restored to God flows out of and necessarily flows out of his own restoration to God and his own transformation by God. We, we really have no hope to engage in God's mission of bringing the gospel to the world unless we ourselves have first been transformed by that very gospel, unless it has first saved us, unless it's first made us new. But when we experience that, when we experience the work of God in our lives and in our hearts transforming us and changing us, the natural thing is that we bring that good news to other people so that they can taste the sweetness of the gospel. I think it's like a really natural thing for people to share the things they love. I love talking about this. How many of you are like foodies, really like eating good food? Andrew, I know you need to raise your hand. If you're a foodie and you go to a new restaurant in town and you try this really fancy burger they had and it's the best burger you have ever had in your entire life, what do you do? You, you go tell, you, you type about it online, you put a review down, thank you, that's good. You go to your best friend and you say, we're going there on Wednesday night. And you're going to try this burger because it is so stinking good. You need to eat this burger with me. When Lexi and I moved to Oshkosh four years ago, which is crazy, it's been four years, we got to experience the EAA for the first two years, not because we went to the EAA, but because the, the jets would fly over our apartment and then our house and the windows would shake. So we got to kind of experience it through our feelings and our senses, not necessarily just our eyes. And two years ago, if you guys remember when the Blue Angels were here, um, our house is like directly in line with the flight line, with the, the runway. And so when the Blue Angels would do their big turn over the town, they would end their turn right above our house, and then they'd kick on the afterburners, and they'd go shoot to 
go right above the, right above the runway uh, to do whatever they were doing for the show. And they flew so low over our house that you could see the pilot in the plane. It was incredible. I absolutely loved it. And we'd run out to the street every time we'd hear them coming, and we'd look up, and all of our neighbors would be on the street to us. It's actually how we got to meet a lot of our neighbors um, because the Blue Angels were going over, and everybody had to see the Blue Angels. And I thought, that has got to be so cool. We need to go see that. So last year, Lexi and I invited uh, her family and my family to go out to the EAA with us, and we went out for a full day, and we watched the show. If you haven't gone, it's incredible to see a biplane pilot fly upside down 10 feet above the runway and then pull straight up and climb. See these jets going just under the speed of sound buzz right over your head and your eardrums explode and all of that fun. It's, it, it really is incredible if you haven't gone. But it is so much fun. It was so much fun for us to see something incredible and to say to our family, you need to see this with us. You've got to come to the EAA. And we're going again this year and bringing some family along Again, we're going tomorrow and on Saturday. Um, I was really hoping at this point that one of the jets that's coming into land would come in because it starts today and the windows would shake and it would be this incredible moment. But <laughs> apparently, apparently that didn't work out. One of my favorite quotes is that you can't commend what you don't cherish. I cannot commend to other people the gospel if I don't first cherish the gospel if I don't first cherish Christ and what he has accomplished for me. Because when I have tasted the sweetness of Jesus, and I've tasted the sweetness of the gospel, I bring it to others. If we want to reach Oshkosh with the gospel living stone, our first order of duty should be to love Christ. Our first order of duty should be to come together in worship, to confess our sins together, to be assured of God's pardon together, to praise God for what he has done in us together, to be stirred up in our love and affection for Jesus so that we would go to this city and share that sweet and incredible and delicious thing that we have tasted, the gospel. That must be our first job as a church. The second thing is that personal transformation leads to worship. Just like we can't hope to engage in God's mission of bringing the gospel to people unless we're transformed, I don't think that we can bring God-glorifying worship unless we're transformed by the gospel and restored to God. Look at all the language of worship in verses 14 through 17. It says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And what? My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And then look at these next two verses. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the sac- sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. God doesn't want his people to bring hypocritical worship. And I think the, like, the very essence of hypocritical worship is coming to God without an acknowledgement of our sin. Whether it's coming to God with our own self-righteousness, thinking, I've had a really good week. I can come and worship God now because I am so good. Or whether or if it's hiding our sin, thinking that we can hide our sin from the Lord, which is part of the essence of the fall, is that humans, we just want to hide from the Lord, and we really can't. But hip- hypocritical worship is coming to God without a broken heart. God desires humble worshipers who know how much they need him and know what he has done for them. I think we see 
a perfect picture of this in Jesus' teaching in Luke 18, 9 through 14. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. But if you want to turn there, it's 877 if you're really fast at your sword drills at getting to the right page. Uh, it says this. It's the, the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's really neat here in this parable that Jesus gives is that what the, what the tax collector says as he comes into the temple to bring prayer to the Lord is actually a summary of the beginning of Psalm 51. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's coming in and he has the prayer that is accepted by God. He is the one who is justified by God. If we want to come together in corporate worship, it needs to be with confession of our sins. It's part of what it means to worship our Lord. And the psalm ends with two verses about uh, the building up of Zion. It's the city of God. And David's restoration uh, to God and his transformation, it fueled his personal worship. But the final longing of Psalm 51 was for the entire community of God's people to be marked by that same sort of repentance. By that same sort of transformation that led to true worship. So really what Psalm, is, the Psalm 51 is teaching us, what God is giving us is a picture um, of restoration and transformation. And what that really is, is repentance. I've used that word a couple times. And we saw it in the shorter catechism earlier. It said, Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, see that, admit our guilt, true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We appeal to God's character in Christ when we ask for forgiveness. So we apprehend, we see the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We are transformed. I love that that catechism answer has both of those pieces in it, the restoration to God peace and the transformation by God peace. And I think that repentance as a part of the Christian life has fallen on hard times today. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. And let me tell you, repentance isn't fun. I don't know if any of you have ever had fun going to a, a good friend of yours or going to your parents or going to your husband and wife and saying, I'm so sorry for how I sinned against you. Does that sound fun to you? To lay out all of your guilt before this person? It's not fun. It's not comfortable. But what I love about the Psalms is that they, they, show, they allow us to feel emotions and things that are not comfortable but are extremely good. They invite us to dance. They teach us to sing. They invite us to play harps. 
They invite us to play tambourines. As we saw in the last three weeks, they also teach us to weep. They teach us to cry out to God. They teach us to deal with the uncomfortable reality of other people sinning against us. They teach us how to deal with the uncomfortable reality of sin in this fallen world. And they teach us how to deal with the uncomfortable reality of sin within us. I don't know about you, but feeling the pain of my own sin is a daily occurrence. And we need to know how to respond. Whether it's a friend, or more often Lexi calling me out for something that I'm doing. Or even if it's in daily quiet times as I'm reading God's word and by his spirit he confronts me. We know what it feels like to have that turn in our gut when we see our sin. We need to know how to respond. When we respond to our sin in repentance, what we encounter in this way is a God who is faithful and just to forgive us because of what Christ has done for us. Repentance and faith are often called the two sides of the same coin because to turn away from sin is at the same time to turn to Christ in faith. And it's there when we, when we turn to God, when we, uh, when we appeal to his character, to his steadfast love, to his abundant mercy. It's there when we admit our guilt in all of its dirtiness to God. It's there when we ask for, for forgiveness, when we ask for him to change us and transform us to make us new. It's there that we experience the grace of God in Christ. It's there that we are changed, and it's there that we find the fuel for our witness as believers and as a church, and the fuel for our worship as believers and as the church. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, our God of steadfast love and abundant mercy, we praise you for the ways that you confront us with our sin, the ways that you graciously call us back to yourself. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin, but for picking us up, for cleansing us, for transforming us. We ask that you'd you'd give us the gift of being a people that are marked by humility and repentance. Ask that you'd transform us as a church so that we would truly be an effective witness. Give us a taste of the sweetness of the gospel so that we can commend to others the thing that we cherish. God, give us humble hearts that we would bring worship that is glorifying to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your transforming spirit. We thank you for these brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.